More and more people talking about it, more and more people recognize that it's a problem, it's being taken seriously. These communities who say what they need, they're finally being listened to. Welcome to episode 350 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This has been a busy legislative session for broadband. Bills that address both policy and funding have kept us on our toes. This week, Christopher teams up with our communications specialist, Jess Delfiaco, to review a few of the bills that state lawmakers seem especially keen to advance. We've been very interested in what's happening in Vermont and North Carolina. Jess and Christopher also review the local situation in Tallahassee, Florida, where community leaders have seesawed over whether or not to engage a consultant to develop a feasibility study. At the root of the matter is the issue of competition and what it really means in a large city. Christopher and Jess talk about the different perspectives that have come out of Tallahassee and how those views have influenced the city's ability to move forward. Now here's Christopher and Jess. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, uh, ILSR, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today I'm speaking with Jess Delfiaco, who's actually going to be hosting this episode. Jess is our communications specialist. Uh, welcome to the host chair. Happy to be here. And I am new to this, so hopefully it goes smoothly. Yeah, if you, if you do a terrible job, we'll edit you out. Just and a bunch of silence. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll never talk of it again. So, Jess, what, do you, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, we're going to just talk about some things that are in the news right now about media broadband networks. First, uh, looking at Vermont, where lawmakers are suddenly eager to support EC Fiber. Yeah, EC Fiber. That sounds, it's almost like Easy Fiber, but it's EC. EC Fiber is uh, around 25 communities in East Central Vermont who have banded together to form their broadband network. Yes. And it's, I'm really excited about what's happening with the House. The House overwhelmingly passed a measure that would um, create uh, funding that would be available, both grants and loans, for um, all kinds of providers. But um, the newspaper stories suggest that they are very keen on that EC fiber model. And right around that time is also a time when I don't think you remember this, Jess, you weren't uh, with us at the time, but EC fiber got its start around the time of the broadband stimulus. And we were very supportive of it. And we really hoped that they would get a very big award to build this network. They'd be, they would have been done years ago. Instead, the Rural Utility Service uh, gave the money to a private company called Vtel, which said, we're going to um, build fiber to the home in a few areas, but we're going to have this really great wireless service in Vermont that's going to serve everyone else. And wireless is not... It's always a good promise, (laughs) but... (laughs) And in Vermont in particular, (laughs) it's really challenging because they, first of all, they don't like towers and they really like their trees. (laughs) So (laughs) A good combination for a good wireless network. Right. And so it just recently came out that practically no one is being served. Uh, People are very frustrated. People who are happy are reporting that they're getting one or two megabits per second. So it's clearly not... Um, the best investment. Um, And people who are frustrated are are trying to get complained to the RUS. And RUS says basically, well, they built the towers and they're doing the service. And I think you you might say, well, you know, they have executed a dumb plan. Um, Well, (laughs) 
<laughs> so um, anyway, it was just it was interesting to me that after years of us promoting the EC fiber model and feeling that this was such a really smart approach that these communities had gotten together and done, and they they did it almost entirely. I mean, very little support from the state over the years. They they did eventually once they'd proven themselves, they did get some money from the state, um, not nearly as much as I think they should have. Um, so I don't want to say that the state didn't do anything for them, but I feel like it's 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 this feeling of oh I'm I'm glad we weren't crazy because mm-hmm. we were among a very few groups that saw how EC Fiber was doing things correctly while the state and the federal government were were giving money to others, including um, private approaches that were destined to fail. And what what are some of the benefits? What sets this model apart from others? The big difference that I see with EC Fiber compared to these other models that have received a lot of more support, it seems like over the years, um, is that EC Fiber is is owned by the communities. Um, you know, it's it's involved with this nonprofit um, Valley Net, and they have this ethos of connecting everyone with very high quality networks. Whereas, the money that's gone to Fairpoint, uh, which was previously Verizon and is actually now um, consolidated, um, consolidated communications. Um, and someone will <laughs> come along and buy it in a few more years, I'm sure, and then they'll change the name again um, to escape from the horrific past. But um, those companies have no commitment to serve everyone, let alone to serve everyone with high quality service. And EC Fiber has figured out how to make sure they're serving everyone. Um, you know, and, and a few years ago, I think it was a few years ago, it may have just been last year, we did a story about EC Fiber and how they were building fiber to homes um, at roughly the same price point for what Fairpoint was getting subsidized to bring DSL. And and you just, again, have a sense that something's gone horribly wrong when we see these stories in which, you know, when you look at grant programs and things like that, EC Fiber, other municipal networks will often say, we'd like to get some money because we have this good business model to serve everyone. And they may get a response that's like, oh, well, we couldn't possibly give you money because we've given this other company money to deliver broadband using pigeons. And, <laughs> and, and so, you know, the money is never available. But yet when the big incumbent providers want money, often to build a crap product to people who want a better product and are already sometimes getting a better product from a network like EC Fiber, Somehow the federal government still finds money to still finds ways to give money to those big incumbents. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, we see it time and time again, I feel like. And I might be I might just be focused on on a few edge cases, but it's really great to see the state of Vermont um, recognizing the benefits of EC Fiber um, and moving in that direction. Um, They had previously enabled communications union districts, I think. Um, is what it's called, um, but I might be butchering that a little bit, making it easier for communities to work together to get some um, um, aggregation, which is really necessary. And we are talking about really small, really rural communities, right? So is this less financial risk for them individually if they band together like this? That's right. Yeah, and it's worth noting, I mean, Vermont, like you said, I mean, we they're often called towns, but they're more like rural areas that are arbitrarily there are some houses right and but it's not like i wouldn't say it's like the west when you get out west of minnesota and iowa you know even iowa has um you know uh, density is actually much greater than if you go to nebraska and montana and places like that like 
like both of these are rural in different senses. Um, Vermont is rural in that there's not large areas that are totally uninhabited. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that you may not be very close to your neighbors. Um, so um, these are challenging areas to connect. EC Fiber has a model that will work. Um, the best part is once that network is built, um, we will not have to subsidize another network on top of it. And that is definitely not true with the subsidies we've poured into companies like VTEL or into um, certainly the big um, incumbents. So, and I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that VTEL is a bad company. I actually have no idea. Um, but I will say that the idea of a statewide wireless network in Vermont always struck me as profoundly stupid. Okay. Well, on that note, not, is there not to understand? <laughs> is there anything else that the state of Vermont could be doing to improve broadband access? I mean, one one point might be streamlining one touch make ready policies. Oh yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad someone else is paying attention. I should say, I'm glad someone is paying attention here because that's that's actually an exciting part of the bill. Is that the uh, Vermont bill would um, deal with this um, the poll access, making sure that those who own the polls cannot. Um, prevent uh, new networks like EC Fiber from getting on the poles um, by having really arduous um, um, make ready, which is basically to say that if a company like EC Fiber wants to build the fiber network on poles um, right now, it may have to wait months and months and months. It may not even know if it's going to wait a month or a year to get access to the pole. And Vermont is trying to tackle that. Uh, Maine has also moved in this direction. So we're seeing some real smart um, decisions, I think, in the New England area about trying to make sure that polls are available for new investment. And that's it's a big deal. States can act on poll access. And, uh, and I think that's exciting. So we're seeing elsewhere that rural communities are having an even stronger push for better broadband. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about North Carolina and oh, the two bills that have do been I ever. introduced lately. <laughs> well, the most exciting thing is just that there's bills moving forward that are promising. Um, you know, North Carolina has had a Republican leadership for almost 10 years now that I would say has been um, overly optimistic in terms of the capacity of uh, the big companies and private sector investment alone to bring high quality networks to everyone. We've talked about this a lot over the years. Um, And what we see with, um, remind me the, what's the name number of the bill? Uh, It's 431. Right. So this is a 431 is the bill in the House, which is in the General Assembly of North Carolina. It has a lot of bipartisan support from what I can tell. Um, the North Carolina League of Municipalities, the um, the Association of Counties, a lot of people in North Carolina that care deeply about improving broadband have been working on this. And they have found a lot of support across the lines, um, which is, I think, a big deal. And we're hoping to see a lot of support in the Senate as well. I would say this is not a foregone conclusion that this will pass, but it is a very sensible step forward to allow local governments to, um, with a variety of, of hoops they have to jump through, um, being able to build infrastructure and then partner with others to operate it. Um, I will say that I'm a little bit frustrated in that, um, that a local government could not build infrastructure and then partner with Wilson or another municipal network that is expressly precluded. Um, but um, they will be able to work with a cooperative like Wilkes or uh, a company like Hotwire or a company like Open Broadband. 
which just happened to be the three of the companies that, that we worked with and talked with in the um, our um, series, uh, Let's Connect in North Carolina. Um, and if you if you haven't seen that on MuniNetworks.org, we've done a we documented this in our town meetings and um, just a fantastic time in North Carolina talking about these issues. This seems like a very sensible bill that will um, not allow cities to to build networks in the way that we would like to see necessarily, um, but will allow them to engage in public-private partnerships, um, which I think is a good step in the interim. Um, I do hope over time that we see greater freedom for communities to make these decisions for themselves. But right now, it's just really exciting because North Carolina is one of these areas in which I felt rural communities were really disadvantaged because not only were they not getting investment from the private sector, they just weren't allowed to solve the problem themselves in any way. Uh, Do you think there's a potential for cooperatives to get involved in these partnerships? Yes. Yeah. And so Wilkes, which is um, a cooperative um, that is um, um, also doing business as River Street Networks, um, they are very active across the state and but limited. Um, these, you know, whether it's them or other cooperatives, um, they can only expand so fast. They can only hire so many construction managers and oversee so many projects. And so if cities and counties were able to build some of this infrastructure and make it easy for a cooperative like that to lease it, then uh, that will allow uh, much more investment, much more rapidly um, in, in areas of rural North Carolina that desperately need it. So, Jess, you, you also are tracking another bill, which I think is, is exciting, but I have not paid as much attention to. Yeah, so that's one in the Senate, and it's uh, Bill 310. Um, which would allow electric cooperatives to apply for funding. Um, previously, they were restricted on getting. Right, from the federal government, I think. Yes. Yeah, so that's we highlighted this in a report that Hannah Trossel did for us um, several years ago. The I think it was a good, the bad, and the ugly about mm-hmm. North Carolina's um, limitations. Um, the Eastmans are a big deal. We've seen states looking at this. I think Texas might be looking at it. Um, Indiana was one of the first with something called the Fiber Act. Um, Colorado's trying to figure out what to do with it. And that's a situation in which... Electric co-ops may need permission from landowners, even though they have fiber running across their fields currently, they may need additional permission to use that fiber for things unrelated to electricity. And that can be a very time-consuming process to try to get those easements, which has precluded electric co-ops from getting more um, aggressive in, in solving the broadband investment gap. Um, so these sorts of approaches that would just solve it, I think, would be very helpful. Frankly, you know, ordinarily, we don't really want the state to step in and sort of abrogate the rights of, of landowners. <laughs> but if you have cable going across your property, just allowing it to be used for other things for community benefits doesn't seem like that onerous to me. And frankly, I think most of the people impacted would like to do that anyway. Yeah, and that's a good point. Do you think, we've talked a little bit about the League of Municipalities being in support of this bill, but do you think there's a lot of public, just average person support for this? Absolutely. I mean, we could go out there and say, people just love our approach. Like, people love what we're doing at ILSR, and they really think municipal broadband or public-private partnerships is the way to go. And I think that we do have a lot of support, to be clear. I also think that people just want better networks. They want something that will work. They want something that will allow their kids to have all the educational opportunities that they could have. Uh, They want things that will allow them to search for jobs. You know, they want something that works. And so we, we see a lot of popularity for our ideas. But I will say that in general, people are hungry for solutions for this. 
And so it's not just a matter of you doing a really good job as a and communications, Jess. But there's <laughs> we're we're and it's I take a, all the credit for these bills. <laughs> yeah. For for once, this is one of those issues in which we're kind of um, rowing downstream, which is uh, it's an odd feeling for me who feels like I'm going upstream most of the time. <laughs> Well, it's great to see North Carolina making some progress then. Yeah, I you know, I I can't understate this enough how glad I am. I feel like the cable and telephone companies have lied for years to um, the Republican and Democratic legislators in Raleigh, in North Carolina, and convinced them that there was no needed public investment, that local governments do nothing but get in the way. And I think we're seeing many more elected officials in Raleigh recognizing the important role that communities can play. You have a lot of counties that independently can make investments and try to make this go more rapidly. You have a lot of cities that are hungry and need their need these kind of networks to keep their businesses in town and they want to keep their property values up and make sure people want to live there. I find it frustrating how people think of rural broadband as kind of like it's almost like a tech issue or it's like a People sometimes act like, oh, it's just broadband. You know, we, we've seen some people say, oh, you know, it's not as important as other issues. Um, but people are leaving their homes in rural areas in part because they cannot get good broadband. I mean, you grew up in a part of Wisconsin that's not exactly a metro region. so <laughs> Not exactly. Yeah, that's, those are the words I would use. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, yeah, it's not about, you know, just being able to get online, but it's the things that that allows you to access, you know, jobs, education, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I I just think it's, you know, if you're telling people, oh, maybe in five years, someone will come and invest in your region. So you're still not allowed to do it yourself. That's a slap in the face. And it's really is it's not necessarily to say it's a death sentence is overstating a little bit, but it is basically condemning a community, I think. Yeah, you're cutting on a lot of years of potential progress and growth mm-hmm. that you would have. You have a lot of people who are not going to come back. They're mm-hmm. moving away and they're going to find another, they're going to build their roots somewhere else. And I think we should be concerned about that. I think we should cherish our communities and, and, and do everything we can to support them rather than saying, well, we think in three to five years, you know, maybe 5G will eventually get out there. And then that's why you can't have broadband today if you wanted to build it yourself. It's um, So let me just say one other thing, which is I don't think that we covered it on the podcast, but for people who aren't regularly reading uh, MuniNetworks.org, first of all, shame on you. Lisa does a great <laughs> job with that. Um, but Arkansas did slightly walk back its um, restrictions. And we do hope to have a podcast in the future once their session ends to talk a little bit about uh, that with some folks who are there. But the important thing is, is that North Carolina and Arkansas are two Southern legislatures dominated by Republicans that are seeing the wisdom of allowing local governments some more opportunities to solve these problems. Um, they're not willing to say that local governments can entirely do what they want, but uh, they are taking a step in the direction of more freedom, more local authority for communities to solve these problems locally. I think that's a big deal. So in uh, Tallahassee, Florida, the city commission recently kind of walked back their decision to move forward on a feasibility study around broadband. Right. Not Tallahassee, Nebraska. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. There's so many of them, you know. Um, And it seems the main criticisms were A, about potential cost Mm -hmm. and B, um, you know, the suggestion that we've heard in a lot of other places, which is there's already plenty of competition. We have 17 providers. 
What do you say to that? <laughs> well, one thing that I can say is that I don't know who thinks they have 17 providers. <laughs> so I wrote a I wrote a, a quick letter to the editor in response to this that um, um, <laughs> the only reason that we think it got published is because um, we had a, a letter. Um, someone sent me an email thanking me for writing it and saying that that she was um, in the situation of only having one option and she hated it in Tallahassee <laughs> and and that she was very thankful that I pointed out to them that that 17 is a comically wrong estimate for the number of providers in Tallahassee. Um, Tallahassee is like almost 200,000 people or so. Um, it's a larger city, a municipal electric city, which means they, they have the polls. Most likely they um, have the, the know-how already to do a lot of the things related to fiber. In fact, they almost certainly already have a fiber network connecting their substations and a lot of the grid, um, but they're not connecting residents and businesses. Um, now, um, the, the op-ed that we read from the Tallahassee Democrat just, it just drove me nuts because I'm so tired of, of people who should know better, right? I mean, you work, uh, on, for a major newspaper, you would think you would know how to engage in basic fact checking. <laughs> so they claimed, well, we don't need to do this because of, um, all this competition. Now I looked at broadbandnow.com to, to look at some of this and they're pretty good. I mean, broadband now uses a lot of flawed statistics from the federal government and elsewhere, and they compile a pretty accurate picture for, for as wide of a, uh, wide of a net as they cast. Um, I think they're pretty good at, at, at giving you a picture of a city and, and they didn't have 17 providers. I think they had like six residential providers. Mm -hmm. I think four of them were satellite, <laughs> you know, which I think it's safe to say that it'd be interesting to find if there's like three people in Tallahassee that have satellite access. I'm mm -hmm. guessing there aren't. But the the point is, is that like most urban areas, uh, Tallahassee has a cable competitor that goes to most homes and uh, CenturyLink, I think, is the telephone provider that goes to most homes with a combination of DSL and maybe fiber in a few areas. Um, but that, that's, the, that's the extent of it. For most people in Tallahassee, which I would say is like more than probably 80 percent. They have no other options for actual broadband service. Yeah, they're not all spoiled for choice, you know, looking at their pamphlet of 17 providers to choose from. <laughs> right, right. It's not like they come home from work and, hey, honey, I was thinking we should change Internet providers yet again to this other one because because of all this price competition we're seeing. Mm -hmm. No, they're paying high rates. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not – you wouldn't think of it necessarily as totally stifling business activity, but I'm sure that businesses are, are frustrated. I mean, every else – every place we've looked at, in depth that has this dynamic, their businesses are overpaying and frustrated with the quality of service. So I assume Tallahassee is the same way. If anyone ever sees anyone suggesting there are double digit figures um, of competition, that person just does not know what they're talking about. If you look <laughs> at the FCC statistics for areas that have residential competition, most areas have two, some have three, I don't think anyone has more than eight. And I think there's like literally you could count the census blocks, um, you know, in a short period of time that have like. I think we have a whole five. report about this that <laughs> covers some of these <laughs> statistics. We do. And, you know, and, and, and one of the, the frustrating things is the areas that have the best competition, which we found in looking at in researching that the profiles of, of Monopoly Telecom report we did um, is that the FCC doesn't even really keep track of the open access networks where we see the robust options. I mean, 
if you're in rural Washington state, you might actually have 10 choices for residential service, but um, that's all through the municipal broadband network that's open to multiple providers. So um, I'll just say out there, if, if you're listening to this and you ever hear anyone saying like, oh, there's 10 choices, they're probably confusing the fact that if you're a business on certain street corners, you might have six or seven choices and other people have two choices and other people have a different two choices. And if you add all those together, you can say people have this many of choices. But the only way you could defend that is to say, well, if you want this provider, you move over here. If you want to then switch to mm -hmm. this provider, you move your house over there. That's not <laughs> at all what is intended by by you know these claims. So the other thing that they said was 3G and 4G. Um, they're like, look at how fast things are progressing, and this is just that a fallacy that I've said many times. Um, you know, when I started um, doing this job, people were saying we don't need to invest in wires anymore. We have Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is going to bring lots of competition. Obviously, that hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. um, this is even, I think, you know, you were probably in, um, maybe in high school at the time, probably in high school. Let's be generous. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, I'm guessing you didn't see a lot of Wi-Fi, like um, business models coming about trying to get to your parents' home as you were growing up. Uh, no, I'm going to say no. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, maybe zero. Right. So people <laughs> told me, well, that's okay, because Wi-Fi was going to be replaced by uh, WiMAX. Did you have any WiMAX service providers in your area when you were growing up? Can't say I did, no. No, no. Um, if, but then that that was not something that really resulted in more competition. 4G LTE came along. And I'm going to guess you do have some 4G LTE competition. Uh, eh, some. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's still spotty. Right. So in 2019, it's still spotty. Um and um, but n would you rely on that in your in your in the home you grew up in? Absolutely not. Yeah. So, you know, this we still have a landline. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like this is this is the reality. And people are like, oh, no, like the magic thing that was going to happen in 2005, that was going to happen in 2009, that was going to happen in 2013, that was going to happen in 2017. It's really going to happen now in 2020. I mean, the people who make these claims, it actually reminds me of those cults who are like, oh, yeah, like the next time we Judgment have an eclipse, day is coming right around all, the corner. <laughs> right. The spaceships are going to come and pick us up. It's it's happening. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't happen. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we Re recalculate. <laughs> exactly. Two years. Yeah. Two years away. It's really going to happen this time. That's that's just my reaction to this idea of 3G, 4G. Everyone's going to have G's. It's really exciting. We're, we're kind of torching the editorial staff because they did a really bad job. And this is really important. But that's not to say that that we are throwing in to say that the city should absolutely move forward with a project. Now, it's been claimed that the project would cost $300 million. I just I think that's indefensible. I, the city like Tallahassee with a municipal electric, if, if you were asking me offhand what I thought it would cost, I would say on the order of 100 to 200 million dollars probably and probably pretty close to the middle in there maybe less you know it's still an expensive project and i think the city should take it seriously i think they should do a feasibility study and they shouldn't go into it thinking we're absolutely going to do this um i think they should be thinking about it in terms of perhaps incrementally like what are the goals the advice we often give cities is what are you trying to solve are you trying to solve broadband in every residence for price competition are you trying to bring broadband to people who can't afford it today? Are you focused on business benefits? Those are the kinds of questions I think they should be asking. And in the meantime, maybe the editorial staff can educate themselves a little bit. You know, it, my fear is always that the editorial staff basically got 
a briefing from Comcast <laughs> and was like, well, this is crazy. And then they just wrote it all down without fact checking it. People that live in urban areas, we're going to see more of this. Um, this morning, we were talking about this, in fact, how we're seeing so many more areas that are considering these kinds of investments. I think we're going to see these flawed stats over and over and over again. People need to prepare, be prepared for how to answer them. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that people who are cautious are wrong, um, but we all need to have our facts in front of us. So, Jess, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, let me just ask you, you've, you've been on staff for uh, nearly nine months now, I think. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Time nine flies. Nine-month anniversary. <laughs> um, the, have you sensed any changes? I mean, I'm, I'm, I realize nine months is not that long of a time as you're sort of getting your sense, but... You know, I I feel like there's an acceleration right now of interest in this stuff, and you're going through the news every day to look and hunt these stories down. Are you seeing any differences? You know, I mean, like you said, it is hard to tell because I don't have a a long-term sense of how things have changed. But I really do. I mean, like you said, I comb through the stories every afternoon, and it seems like my Google alerts are more full every week. Um, It's just more and more people talking about it, more and more people recognize that it's a problem. It's being taken seriously. These communities who say what they need, they're finally being listened to, I think, at a higher level. Yeah. the um, I mean, just I'm, I'm just thinking right now, um, the stories that Lisa's put up recently, I mean, <laughs> classic recency bias, perhaps, <laughs> but um, we don't have a story up yet about, um, I don't think, about um, about Erie um, County in, in New York, um, but they're moving forward. Uh, well, they've proposed an interesting project for a backbone. Um, Loveland, Colorado and Estes Park both seem to be moving forward municipal broadband. Um, Hillsboro in um, Oregon, which had received tragically bad, terrible advice from Uptown Services, which I've written about a few times on muninetworks.org. Um, they're moving forward with a really innovative approach. Um, you know, I I just, I feel like we're seeing all kinds of, of cities that are not just saying we should look into this, but that are actually moving forward. And it's pretty exciting right now. Yeah, it's hopeful. Yeah. Um, so with that, I think, you know, we could probably leave people and... And let me just remind people that that we do two other podcasts uh, through ILSR, at least. Um, the two I'm thinking of are Building Local Power. <laughs> Who knows how many podcasts we do? <laughs> yeah. Check out ILSR.org for the latest in podcasts. Um, but And the other podcast is Local Energy Rules, which has had a really great series on cities that are planning on and, and getting to 100% renewable uh, energy. And uh, come on back. We'll be back next week. We're going to be doing some live interviews pretty soon with folks down at the Broadband Communities event in Austin, uh, which will be next week. So it should be really great. That was our communications specialist, Jess Del Fiaco, talking with Christopher about recent legislative efforts in Vermont and North Carolina and Tallahassee, Florida's decision not to move forward with the feasibility study. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR that Christopher mentioned during the show, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. 
Thank you to Arne Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 350 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>